Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored by the Center of Crime Victim Services here in the state of Vermont. I am Anna Nasset, and I am your host for this bi-monthly show. And today on the show, I'm delighted to have Ashley Messier here from the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative here to discuss our current prison system and what reimagining and dismantling the system looks like. The show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, concepts for victims and survivors of crime, as well as our community as a whole. We want to acknowledge people's healing process and provide resources, not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit everyone as they begin to mend and walk through their life. And today we're going to look at reimagining systems. Um, this is a show where we can all learn, myself included. I'm really excited to learn from Ashley today and probably be pretty challenged too. And I think that's always a really good place where we can listen to other people and hear their experiences and their stories and their thoughts and have it challenge our own systems and beliefs. That's what it's about. Um, as always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to speak, but within that, like we sometimes share our stories, we talk about different sub difficult subject matter. So I always like to start off with a trigger warning as well. So today, as I said, we have Ashley Messier here. Ashley brings years of community organizing advocate and direct experience with the criminal legal system to inform her passionate and powerful approach to advocacy and abolition. She was pre previously incarcerated at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility. Messiers also served on the Vermont Organization for the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. She serves on the Vermont Commission of Women. The council that she serves on is a network of formerly and currently incarcerated women and girls committed to reimagining communities and creating the shift from a criminal legal system to community-led human justice. Messier served as a consultant and then as a lead organizer for the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont Smart Justice, a campaign fighting in legislators, the courts, in the voting booth, and in the streets to end mass incarceration by addressing sentencing, bail, and prosecutional reform, as well as parole, release, and reentry reforms. Messier is a member of the Vermont Human Trafficking Task Force and participates on its housing subcommittee. Her related work includes an active role in Act 146 working group, the working group exploring using restorative justice in domestic and sexual violence and stalking cases. Thank you for being here today, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. That is quite the bio you have. And I'm really excited to just dig into the show with you um, and learn from you. Um, I think this is going to be a really eye-opening conversation, and I'd love to start by you just sharing a bit about yourself um, in whatever way you feel comfortable, how you got into the work, what fuels your passion. Just tell me about you, Ashley. Yeah, well, I, that is a, it's a long bio that's taken a, a lot of years to, to compile. Um, I think a lot of really important pieces about me and how I show up to this work are, are not in that. So uh, it does mention that I'm formerly incarcerated. Um, I'm also a, a victim of human trafficking, which is how I, I came to be on the task force. Um, I'm also a, a victim of uh, domestic and sexual violence. 
I'm also a former IV heroin and cocaine addict. I um, am someone who uh, struggled with the child welfare system and have uh, kiddos that were adopted at one point during my struggles uh, with addiction and incarceration. I also have like uh, now all these years later, I'm a, I'm a safe placement for kiddos who have their own DCF cases. So I have a lot of experiences sort of across systems um, and across issues. And, you know, my, my work around uh, corrections and the legal system in, in connection with women really came from being incarcerated here in the state of Vermont. You know, I was sitting in the day room uh, in, in the unit at the prison and, and I was sitting at the table with other women and we were just having conversations, right? About our lives, about our kids, our families, you know, our, our childhoods. And it was just such a, a diverse and varied group of folks, uh, racially, economically, socially, et cetera. And I started to wonder, how did we all get here? How, at what point, you know, we all had such very different stories. Some, some pieces of our stories were very similar but I started to really question, you know, what, what failed us along the way? What uh, needs did we have that weren't getting met? What, what uh, access to treatment or healthcare did we need that we weren't getting? What sort of, what were those more uh, systemic failures that this very uh, diverse group of women were, were all sitting in the same place at the same table? Uh, and so when I left prison, which actually wasn't all that long ago, uh, I stepped out of CRCF for the last time, August 26th of 2016, um, and, and really got to work. And it really started with sharing my story because there are so many sort of co components to it, um, and really just trying to create space for other people to feel like they could do the same. And I very quickly realized that uh, directly impacted voices were, did not have seats at the table where decisions were being made. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really my goal to one, pair like real education. And of course I have a level of privilege, right? So I'm white to start with, that gives me a level of privilege. I was collegially educated before I went to prison. So another layer of privilege. Um, and so how could I pair that with professional development and advocacy and activism to create space at those tables and in those spaces where decisions are being made? Um, and so the, you know, the council has this great tagline, you know, nothing about us without us. It's used in other sort of social justice movements. Um, and I really took that to heart. You know, the people, the, there's a, a lot of great quotes, right? The people closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I really, I really believed in that. Um, and, and that's really how, how I came to this work. And WJFI was created because, you know, I've done this work in a lot of different ways from a lot of different viewpoints, um, worked on a lot of different like intersecting issues, right? Whether it's, it's uh, violence or trafficking or uh, substance use disorder, you know, or, or corrections, et cetera, and really wanted to be able to do this work in a very different way. Um, and so that's where uh, the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative was sort of born out of, was really realizing that the solution, right, to safe and thriving communities in Vermont and really across this country is to start to begin to address the root causes to why 
to why women in particular, starting with women and folks that identify as women, uh, become entangled in the system in the first place, because it looks very differently for them than it does sort of their male counterparts and what that trajectory looks like. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your own path. And then, I mean, just like, it sounds like literally the day you got out of prison, got to work and probably were already working beforehand. And it's amazing, um, just the reflection into immediate action. And I couldn't agree more. If we don't have a seat at the table, change isn't really going to be there. So thank you for not only taking a seat at the table, but creating a table through the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about what this initiative is, like you kind of started to, but just like what it is, um, what are the goal of it, the ultimate goal, um, and the steps that you're taking to, like you're currently engaging in to get to this long, broader, bigger goal. And if there's other such initiatives in other states. Absolutely. Um, starting with the, the other states piece, I want to say I am, again, privileged. I, I use that word often to, to really recognize it. But uh, there are amazing women across this country who um, are, are doing this work. So the National Council is one. They do amazing work. And they have a, a more localized group called Families as Justice as Healing. And they're in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Uh, Change Comes Now uh, is in Lake Park, Florida, working on uh, conditions around Lowell and the, the women's facilities in Florida where there's just been horrific um, assaults and, and sexual assaults and, you know, women essentially are lost in the Florida correction system forever. Um, Deborah Bennett is, is an amazing uh, ED of, of that organization. Uh, Tahiba Bain uh, runs an organization in, in Connecticut called uh, Women Against Mass Incarceration. And they do uh, amazing work uh, similar to, to what we do really around um, community engagement, voter registration, looking at women's incarceration, re-entry, sort of all of the pieces of, of the carceral system. Um, and there, there are many other organizations, Free Hearts uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, run by Don Harrington, so yes, across this country, in every state, those are just a few off the top of my head, uh, women are leading the, these, their own uh, organizations to really address this work dif differently um, and just doing amazing work in their hyper-local areas. So that's, that's the, the national context. Um, awesome, thank you. So yeah, at WJFI, you know, we uh, started uh, in the midst of, of the pandemic. Uh, we, we were opened our doors uh, in, in February, essentially, and through the spring, and um, really just jumped into COVID response. So we began doing a lot of mutual aid work, um, a lot of uh, programming needs, reentry needs, you know, there was a, a mass release of women out of CRCF. Um, and so, and then everybody was working remotely. So like who picked them up from the prison and how did they get anywhere? And what did housing look like as sort of all communities in Vermont were really struggling to, to figure out what this was going to look like in the early months, right. Of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of just, very quick on the ground. How do we meet needs? How do we keep people safe? Right. Um, and so that work blossomed into more intentional, you know, mutual aid work. Um, it blossomed into looking at um, a collaboration. So 
my organization was one of several that received CARES Act funding to, um, we created this really amazing collaboration. So it was Mercy Connections, Vermont Works for Women, uh, the Divas program, and obviously the, the Vermont Network, um, my organization, and we all really built this very cool out of the box collaboration on how do we do wrap services? How do we do real integrated basic need met reentry for, for these women? And, and what does that then look like, right? What path does that put them on and how does that change, you know, what things look like for them? Um, and, you know, I think now we're in a space because CARES Act funding expired December 31st on how we continue doing that work. So day by day, we're trying to figure out how do we keep this going? Because it was just such an amazing response to a need. And that need had always been there. You know, what, what the pandemic did was really uh, highlight the need of, mm -hmm. of this kind of work and this kind of collaboration. Um, and so, you know, that was one piece of work we were really engaged in. You know, we continue to be engaged, um, myself especially, in, in all legislative work that pertains to the women or that facility. So, you know, we, we do a lot of work with the folks on the Justice Reinvestment 2 working group, having different conversations with them and attending those meetings. Um, obviously, I belong to the Human Trafficking Task Force because many of the women who are corrections involved in our state also have that as a piece of their story and experience. Um, and it is not as widely talked about or known. Um, Absolutely. It's, I think, you know, there's a lot of shame and stigma around saying, I am a victim of trafficking, you know, with the connotation of that's for sex work and what that looks like. And, you know, I think that it, that's a piece of my story that took me a little bit longer than some of the other pieces. You know, it's a little more accepted to struggle with substance use, oddly enough, or a little more accepted to be uh, a victim of domestic or sexual violence. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you know, that work has been really important too. Um, I also want to say WJFI uh, has really created relationships uh, with the women, both in the correctional facility and outside. So we do a lot of advocacy work uh, at the facility and systems level. Um, you know, women reach out to us over a myriad of issues. We did a lot of work on the independent investigation that went into CRCF responding to the allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, we do a lot of work in the community with, with reentry. We have created a closed Facebook groups so that people who are incarcerated at CRCF can like have a private space to have connections and to, to find, try to step out of some of that isolation. Mm -hmm. We hold community forums to really talk about sort of abolition, what that means and what that looks like. Uh, we also have that from a legislative perspective too. So a recent one we held with the ACLU and the Vermont Network around sort of legislative priorities. Where are we a year later after, you know, Paul Hines came out with the Guarded Secrets article about a lot of the, the allegations of misconduct. Um, there, there are a lot of pieces to our work. We just started a, a pen pal project. We do a radical study, which is teaching folks about abolition and what that really means. Can you, I've got so many questions right now yeah, <laughs> because ready. there's so many. Um, can you talk about what abolition of the prison system looks like or what, what is your, what, what does that look like? And it, what is the goal with, with your initiative to get there? Absolutely. So, you know, first I want to start with a little context. So, you know, last year, sort of pre COVID, right. Uh, there was a very public, uh, 
agreements, both interim commissioner Baker, myself, other stakeholders, other legislators, everyone is in agreement that CRCF needs to close. Both sort of uh, just the physical structure and, and, uh, and obvious other uh, issues that happen at the, with that facility. So everyone is sort of in agreement and has been for a while that that facility needs to close. Where we differ in opinions, right, is, is what needs to come next. So uh, at WJFI, uh, we uh, are in the early stages of launching a no new prison campaign. I have worked on uh, the, no new, the, the no prison construction issue for years now legislatively and in the community. Uh, more because I think we, we have sort of put the cart before the horse and, and should and need desperately to have a conversation about what else is possible. So before we take millions and millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer money for new prison construction, which prison in and of itself does not make you any safer in many cases, uh, how can we think about the ways in which we can create real safety, real meaningful change for folks? And that looks like mental health. We have level funded mental health, healthcare, uh, substance use disorder services for years. What does it look like to adequately fund those? What does it look like to start really digging in in our hyper-local communities, whether that's Waitsfield, Newport, Bennington, you know, Orleans, wherever you may be, what does it look like to bring resources, accessible resources to your community to really start addressing the reason why folks even become right involved in these systems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our big ask, especially uh, this year and for this session is going to be a conversation around what else is possible and can we get a, a, a working group, a work group or a study committee before you build a new prison to just at least have that conversation. Abolition, you know, a lot of people really think about abolition as, oh my God, you just wanna like close the prison tomorrow, open all the doors and, and let these horrible folks run rampant in our communities. And that's just such a, such a misconception and, a, and a, a far from true. So yes, a piece of abolition is dismantling our correction system as we know it. That is absolutely true. Reform is the idea that we can change this piece or change that piece and make it better, right? Make it more humane, uh, make it better in some way. And the reality is, is you cannot fix a system that was created to replicate slavery. You cannot reform your way out of systems that were created to oppress uh, and to um, essentially out of you know, white supremacy and racism. Like that's exactly what prisons were created for was to replicate you know, profitable human bodies and slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, there is no fixing that. That requires a dismantling of and doing something different and new. Uh, you know, abolition is the, the vision that we think of crime, instead of using the word crime, we think of harm, right? Mm -hmm. Harm becomes a spectrum. So if I, if I say to you, is it worse that you cheated on your partner and broke your children's hearts and ruined your family, or is it better or worse that you stole a laptop from Best Buy? Right, so if we think about crime, 
as harm and the spectrum that harm then becomes, the idea behind responding to harm differently also changes, right? And yep. so uh, let's, I'm gonna use my own personal story, for example. So I was in a very uh, uh, abusive uh, marriage at one point when I was very young. People ask me like, why didn't you ever call the police or, or didn't you wanna put them in jail or like, you know, this person like was horrifically abusive to you. And I said, no, jail would not have made him any better. Like this is someone who held the record for like most foster homes and facilities ever attended by a male child under 15 for like years, held that title. Who's, who was, you know, sexually molested as a young child, whose mom struggled with addiction, who was in and out of her custody and DCF's custody. And, you know, so the reality is, is that he needed significant, right, treatment. He needed trauma work. He needed to address those root causes to why this was his behavior. And this was his response to relationships and stress and all of those pieces. And so it's not to excuse behavior. It's not to minimize behavior. It is to create real accountability, real accountability and change come through healing. Real justice comes through, through those as well. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing and just breaking that all down for us. Um, you know, I kind of shared with you a little bit in my question, like my questions that I wrote to you, like, you know, personally, I have put somebody in prison mm -hmm. and he's currently incarcerated. And, you know, when he started the crime 10 years ago, all I wanted was for this man to get help. Um, and that was, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, like, what do you want to see? Like, I want this person who's harming me to get the help they need. Um, this person has continuously not wanted to get help, not wanted to access services, been given every opportunity from his family, from the state, from so many different places and has rejected that. So ultimately now he is in prison. And I'm just curious, what would your response be to uh, an individual like that where they've just been given every opportunity to unpack and to go through their trauma and to work through their own things, but rejected it and they are now in prison. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come up for me. One, first and foremost, like, um, I think that all victims, right, all people who have been harmed have been have been harmed have the right to heal and, and feel safe in, in a myriad of ways, right? So we should have a myriad of options for folks, first of all. I think that my concerns become that even though we're incarcerating people, does that actually make them safer? Most people will get out, whether it's in 10 years, five years, 27 years, most folks will get out and how are they gonna come out? Right. Our, current, our current correction system is not helping him address any of his needs in the meantime. Correct. So just because he's incarcerated, a lot of times that leads to people understanding how to uh, better commit harm, how to commit different kinds of harm, how to be more angry. Um, and my hope for everyone in community is that when people are, are segregated from our community, that that is space for them to, to get some help, to address their needs. Clearly there was something like not happening for him where he was like, saw a path to actually getting help or the things mm -hmm. being offered to him were not the right mix of what would have helped him. 
I am nowhere saying that like there aren't folks who do need like a higher level of care, but does that look like a prison cell with sewage that backs up into the unit and with no help and with steel bars where people are treated as less than human? I don't think that's conducive to, to keeping anyone safe either. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Thank you. I was just really curious. I was like, oh. well, we're doing this interview, so I might as well ask. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, and the thing that I'm always really clear about is that abolition is a goal. It's a vision, mm -hmm. right? And there is still a really long road to get there. And there is still a lot for communities, for individuals, for legislation, all of those pieces to figure out is what does that look like? Absolutely. But, but I think everybody can understand at this point that like prison doesn't actually work. If prison worked, we wouldn't have any. This is 2021. And so if prison Absolutely. was a successful deterrent, uh, kept you safe, people were like healed and, and much better, like we wouldn't have oh, two and a half million people incarcerated in our yeah. country. And from my own experience, like, do I think he's going to have rehabilitation and come out of prison and be a-okay? 100% no, absolutely not. Um, you know, I've chosen the path I've chosen because myself and others were in extreme danger and it gave me freedom to be able to heal myself. Mm -hmm. But that's also at the cost of him not being able to get the help he needs. And like, I'm pretty upfront about that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I do want to kind of veer into looking back here in our state, like you, you work mostly with women's prisons, correct? Mm -hmm. That is your focus. Um, you know, I would like to talk a little bit like the end of 2020, and there's been other reports released detailing sexual assault history in the Chittenden mm -hmm. Regional Correctional Facility mm -hmm. here in Vermont. Um, what is your response to this report? How does this and other reports as well? Because um, obviously this is a problem that goes on in probably every single correctional facility across the country. And how does this inform your work? And what do you think, like, how do you, how, like, I guess just kind of if you could expand upon that, because I feel like that's a bigger question yeah. that I'll just let you run with. Yeah, so uh, I was you know, what started this report obviously was seven days in Paul Hines' initial article in December of 2019. Uh, upon release of that article, I was in the facility every day, all day. Uh, there, was, there was a lot that went on uh, immediately preceding that article. Um, we also worked with Downs, Racklin and Martin during uh, the investigation. So during the creation of this report, um, and were present, you know, when this report was released at the press conference. I would say for the report itself, um, you know, it was a small victory that they sort of uh, said, like, these allegations were credible, that there were many mm -hmm. allegations, that there were some that were new that hadn't been heard before that we forwarded to law enforcement, uh, that we believe these allegations after all of our investigations um and conversations and research we conducted um so that was a small victory you know being perfectly honest in the back of my head I was like yeah the women have been screaming this for decades by the way mm -hmm. you know and I continue to say that so that that was a small win um I think that there's recommendations that I find on the conservative side if you're asking me my honest opinion but I am hopeful 
that uh, we can adopt many of these recommendations that uh, Secretary Smith and that interim commissioner Baker take these recommendations seriously. Um, I have a great relationship with Commissioner Baker. I think that uh, I'm really proud of the relationship that I have with corrections, both at the facility um, and even at the commissioner level. I am committed to being solution focused and to working with them to create all of the changes necessary because those are real people's lives in the meantime, right? I might believe in abolition. I might think we need to close CRCF yesterday, uh, but I also am aware that like there's a road to get to that vision. And in mm -hmm. the meantime, I'm dedicated to, to working in a solution focused way. And so, you know, we, uh, we will continue to support any changes and efforts. We continue to, to consult. We continue to have conversations. We continue to have meetings. We stay in touch with the women. I talk to women who are incarcerated at that facility every single day. Um, you know, I have a good relationship with Teresa Stone, who's the superintendent of CRCF. And, and we talk about all kinds of issues, uh, good and bad. And so, you know, we... I tell folks that while WJFI has an official board uh, per IRS requirements, um, and they're wonderful people, I have an amazing board, super lucky. Um, at the end of the day, the people that I uh, am responsible to are, are the women in CRCF and the women who have lived there. And that's mm -hmm. ultimately who, who I answer to and who guides our work. And so- awesome. Um, that's, that's really our involvement in the report. I mean, I will say that, you know, I have some concerns and, and, you know, one thing that commissioner Baker talks a lot about is the culture, right? The, the sexualized culture, uh, in Vermont corrections. And it's not just, uh, sort of against the women who are incarcerated, right. Or who are in their custody, even in the community custody, it's also for female employees because the reality is a toxic system, right. Is toxic for everyone not just mm -hmm. the people whose custody they're in, but also for the employees and the staff. And I think that there are incredibly thoughtful, well-intentioned people that work for corrections. And I want to see better for them as well. You know, I'm, I'm committed to changing the system, which will in effect, you know, effectively change it for, for them as well. You know, my interest is not only for the women, that's my primary interest but also recognizing that we are all members of the same community and that, you know, the pieces uh, need to be addressed for them and their well-being as well. Awesome. I just want to say like how I'm really inspired and moved by the way that you work. Like you have a goal and you have your primary focus of the women who are in this facility, but your ability, um, having just met you today and listening to you, your ability to bring everyone like you made a table and you're inviting everyone into it to take these steps. And it's really um, inspiring. And I think it's a very, it's how we should all be working on whatever we're doing is bringing everyone to the table, whether we have shared agreements or not, like being able to have conversation to get to that end goal is so huge. I mean, we see that more than ever in our country right now, how that's not happening. And I just want to really like commend you for your approach and how you go about doing it because it's amazing. So thank you. Well, <laughs> just had to like break in with that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I definitely made me a little teary eyed. Sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, hey, 
I encourage people to show up as, as their whole beings and their whole selves. Um, I think, I think that's why maybe I work in the way I do is because I really believe that like honesty is, is our best bet. Right. And we really need to break down sort of these siloed approaches and, and these backdoor conversations and these, you know, uh, secret meetings in the corner you know, this is a, Mm -hmm. we need to break out of the individualism that comes with a lot of this work and these issues and, and really get back to a space of, this is a community, like this is community accountability, right? Mm -hmm. We are all accountable for what is going on in these facilities, in these systems across the board. And, and so we all have a seat at the table because we all need to be part of the solution. Absolutely. Yes. Snaps to that. Thank you. Um, as we start to wind down, because we've just like shot through this time, which is amazing. I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer. Um, just a couple like light questions. Um, how do you envision a world free of prison systems with community care in place and everyone looking to care for their community appropriately? Um, what do you, what, what's your dream? What does that look like? Oh, my dream. Um, you know, I think that, you know, people, uh, I always like in this conversation to when people talk to me about the, the Nordic model, which is a, in Nordic countries, you know, they have a very different way of responding to, to crime and incarceration and their facilities look like dorm rooms and they're allowed to go out into the community during the day and like all of these wonderful pieces. And I always say to people, Nordic model would never work here. It would never work because in Vermont and in this country, we prioritize vengeance and punishment over humanity and dignity. The Nordic models work in those countries because those countries, those communities have decided that someone's dignity and their humanity are more important. And so, you know, when I think about what, you know, if I had a, a magic wand or a, or a Harry Potter wand or any of the wands really, uh, you know, what I would look for, that's what I look for is to live in communities. And if anywhere can do it, it's really Vermont. I mean, listen, this like, right, this is Vermont. We are neighbors. Mm-hmm. You cannot go to the grocery store and anybody listening to this who lives in Vermont is about to know that I'm right. You not go to the grocery store and talk, start talking to somebody. You get to the fifth person that you both know and you're like related. Or you're like, oh, oh my yeah. God, they were my best friend in high school. Like You get to the third person, you know. See, yeah. this is what I'm saying. So, you know, if anywhere can sort of change that view, they're like, we are all neighbors. Vermont is a small community, even statewide. And so we do care about each other, right? Like, I do care about what my neighbor's doing. I do care about when the farm down the road started struggling because of the pandemic, I showed up to help, right? Mm-hmm. I brought them dinner you know, all of those pieces, like this is Vermont. And so if we can change communities that are gonna start to prioritize their neighbors, their community members, and, and start prioritizing dignity and humanity, it's gonna be Vermont. Like we, we can do it here. That is, that is what being a Vermonter is about, right? It's about like small towns, staying true, staying close to the ground. Think about the way we prioritize the environment here you know, all of those pieces are about community, are about the way in which we want to live. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's what I envision are thriving communities where all people matter, 
where all people are valued and where we understand that harm is a spectrum and how we respond to harm is also a spectrum. Prison does not in and of itself keep you safe. In fact, in many cases, it can make you more unsafe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. And you're so right. I mean, I feel like, you know, we, we are community and everything we do through before this pandemic, through this pandemic, um, you know, I know that we both probably are familiar with the work that the network is doing right now um, with their campaign, which I'll save that for another episode, but really looking at instead of just incarceration, how do we start to break this down? How do we show up for our neighbors and create a place that's really going to be a thriving community for everyone? Um, and we really could be the four, we could lead the country in this. I mean, there's no reason we can't. We've got the, we've got the people and we've got the leaders to do so. So thank you. Um, how can people get involved in the initiative here in our state? And we already shared some resources for other states. So look this up in your own state if you're listening from someplace else, but how can we get involved here in Vermont? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for our work, obviously you can uh, go to our website, which is uh, wjfi.org. Uh, you know, we, as the pandemic, we're, we try to really honor COVID precautions. And so uh, when folks are able to sort of gather and do those pieces, of course, we will be uh, doing more sort of volunteers and events and those pieces, but really, you know, following our work, getting involved, um, we have the, the Pen Pal Project. We have a radical study where uh, our grassroots organizer, Jaina, uh, does an amazing job really talking about abolition and the issues around it and like helping people understand and, and be educated around that. Um, you know, we have projects, different projects from time to time. We have a Speaking Truths Project, which is really about collecting stories and experiences. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get involved. Um, and so definitely uh, following us on social media, going to our website, reaching out. Um, I think pretty much everybody in Vermont must have like my cell phone number by now and like know how to get a hold of me, <laughs> which is always, I always tell people like reach out and, and you know, we're, we're here. Um, and, awesome. And really just stay educated on the issues. That was going to be my question, um, especially within like abolition of the prison system. Could you recommend a couple of sources like maybe a Netflix show or something like that where people could learn about how this prison system really truly was built and why we need to really reimagine it? Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you haven't seen the 13th by now, uh, you need to watch that. Just go uh, watch it. Yeah. Just, that was just, where I was leading you to. Yeah, I was like, like, just go, like, just go watch the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> and Gilmore has some amer uh, amazing sort of podcasts and talks that she gives. Uh, of course, anything Angela Davis has ever written, please read. Um, there are just, there's a lot of amazing resources on, on abolition uh, I would also say there was a, a movie documentary recently done called Time, and it's the story of uh, Robin Rich Fox, and it's her quest to get her husband um, out of incarceration. It's, it's an amazing film, uh, privileged to know their organization and, and them. Um, and so uh, also going to uh, the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls has a lot of the partner and allied organizations information on their website. Um, and, and we have a lot of connections with lo you know, local 
organizations in Vermont doing this work. Um, shout out Black Perspective is trying to get 10,000 followers on their social media. So we really support other abolitionist work um, across the carceral issues, whether it's policing to incarceration and, and everything in the middle. So we, we lift up other abolition work happening in our communities and throughout our state and country. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, and just thank you so much for being here today. This has been such a eye-opening interview for myself and that's what it's about. We need to learn and challenge ourselves. And thank you just for all the work that you have done, Ashley, um, and sharing your story. And like I said, stepping, sounds like you just stepped out of the, the facility and right to work. And I just cannot thank you enough for sharing your work with us today. Um, as Ashley Messier said, you could follow her. Um, you can learn more at wjfi.org. Um, look up the other resources she had to share with us. Um, the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative, everyone, go check it out. I always like to land or end with just one little positive sentence or thought that you have um, for whoever you want to speak to right now, just something you've got that you want to share. Wow. Um, I would say that um, one thing I always share is if I can do it, anybody can. Like I was a horrible addict. I lost my children. I was, you know, in prison. Um, so many of these women are the most talented, amazing, smart people I have ever met, more so than myself. And, you know, it just, we just need to find the right path forward, the right path mm -hmm. forward. Well, I hope you join me and Ashley in helping find that path. And thank you for leading the way, Ashley. And thank you for doing it. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Mend. As always, if you have questions, you can email me, Anna, at standupresources.com. And we'll be back uh, next episode was with the divas. So I'm excited to have them on. And thank you so much. Be well, stay healthy, and we'll be back soon. Thank you. And thank you, Ashley. Thank you.